Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, coming to you from Amsterdam and the site of ULAR 2018. This podcast is part of our expanded coverage of ULAR. You can find us on our daily email from RoomNow or by going to the website ULAR18.RoomNow.com. Now the podcast. This is going to be a collection of audio reports from RoomNow faculty, key opinion leaders, or abstract presenters from the meeting. I hope you enjoy the podcast and be sure to tell your friends to tune into Room Now to follow these podcasts and to subscribe. Take care. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, coming to you from ULAR 2018. Today I attended an interesting session on deck scanning, dual energy CT scans in gout, with a great lecture from Nicola Dalpa. She began the lecture by telling us that this has been around for about 10 years the first reports appearing in 2007 and 2009. The role of this particular imaging modality is like other imaging modalities to help us with diagnosis and whatnot, but she believes that the role of DEX scanning is probably most important in diagnosis, especially where diagnosis is difficult, and also in the assessment of disease activity and or disease complications. It is not necessary to be done for most patients who have clear tophaceous gout, but it may be necessary if you feel that gout could be responsible for the complications a patient is exhibiting and whether you want to see if tophi and urate deposits may in fact be the, the cause of that. Interestingly, she, sh- she showed us that the resolution of the lesions that can be found by DEX scanning can be as low as 0.01 uh, square centimeters. So it's really quite small. But it is important that those uh, crystals be in high concentrations and tightly packed together, otherwise it may not show up. So there may be negatives in patients with gout, and there may be also be false positives, including artifact from, mo- from motion and whatnot. Uh, thick skin, for instance, might be an- another reason for this. But she showed us some uh, good examples of where it shows up in joints, around joints, on tendons, actually in soft tissues, um, and basically said that that this is a a modality that has a fairly good sensitivity. And the question is, which is a more sensitive and or more specific test, either ultrasound with its double contour sign and beating, or the uh, DEX scan? And an analysis that she showed that um, between the two, um, I'm looking at the data here, ultrasound, ultrasound, deck, ultrasound, deck, 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 ultrasound, and deck, and deck. It's split as far as sensitivity. When it comes to uh, specificity, they're both pretty good, maybe a little bit better with deck scanning, but these are both, you know, highly sensitive, highly specific uh, modalities that can be used. Obviously, ultrasound's a lot cheaper, a lot easier, a lot more portable. Uh, and has no radiation. Radiation exposure here is about that scene with a usual CT scan, so it is not uh, inconsequential. So the question is, uh, is this going to be the new standard of care, or is this still a research tool or one that can only be used uh, in, um, in the management of difficult patients? So it has implications in monitoring. Uh, it's been shown uh, in one study that 47% of patients in the UK who had uh, an SUA of less than six uh, had no subcutaneous TOFI, um, but 
Oh man, and Hi, I'm Ben Knoll. I'm with the Global Healthy Living Foundation, the Creaky Joints Patient Community. And I'm here at ULAR 2018, and I'd like to tell you about a study that we did, and we had a poster uh, presented this year in Amsterdam. Um, and the study was on RA patients and their, the barriers to treatment optimization. So this was a study uh, where we surveyed 249 patients within our arthritis power patient powered research network, essentially a patient registry. Uh, and we have information about these patients, uh, for example, their patient reported outcome data, um, the RAPID3, uh, several of the NIH promise measures. Uh, this study in particular was a cross-sectional uh, study that we did where we asked some specific questions um, to try to understand sort of barriers to, to changing treatments, to treatment optimization. Uh, that were faced by patients and also patients' perception uh, of their own disease activities. So some of the things that we found were that of the, uh, of the proportion of the patients who were in high disease activity as defined by the RAPID-3, we found that uh, two-thirds of those patients were actually not offered a treatment change. Um, among uh, the patients who were offered a treatment change, um, and decided to make a treatment change, it was because the, that their RA symptoms had not gotten better or were actually getting worse on the current um, That was the number one reason. Uh, the second reason for that group of patients was that, uh, for, again, for more than half of them, was that their doctor uh, recommended making a change of treatment. What's interesting is that we also asked and, and examined for patients who decided to scale back their treatment um, the number one reason they decided to scale back was also a doctor's suggestion. They said their, their rheumatologist had recommended it. And uh, similarly for patients who decided to stay with the treatment they had, even if the patient was in high disease activity, uh, they were again deferring to their doctor and it was because the, their doctor said that it was okay uh, to stay with their current, uh, their current treatment regimen. Um, we also wanted to examine in this, in this study um, how patients sort of subjective self-report of their disease activity uh, just with a one-item measure um, over the past 10 days, or the past, sorry, the past seven days, how would you uh, rate your disease activity, um, you know, low, medium, or high? We found that there was actually very weak correlation between that sort of one-item measure, patient self-report, uh, subjective uh, expression of their disease activity with their rapid three scores. Um, so what we're finding is that a um, couple kind of conclusions we're drawing from this um, is that it seems that patients are still very deferential to their, uh, to their doctor's recommendations, um, that it might help to find uh, ways uh, of activating or educating patients to understand uh, when they are in high disease activity and when it might be uh, appropriate to to talk about a treatment change with their doctor. And then finally, that perhaps the RAPID-3 uh, may not be the, the most relevant for, for at least the patients in this survey and this sample uh, to reflect uh, how they perceived or experienced uh, what they understood to be for themselves high disease activity. Everyone, I'm Olga Petrina reporting from the 2018 ULAR meeting in Amsterdam. Uh, today's plenary session opened with a presentation of a secondary analysis of a Cantor, uh, Cantor's trial 
Uh, this trial in the past showed a beneficial effect of map in preventing cardiovascular uh, disease in patients at risk. The secondary analysis was designed to see if patients who also suffer from gout uh, would benefit in terms of decreasing frequency of gout attacks or improvement of serum uric acid level. Uh, patients in this group received three doses of canakinumab, one of each, 50 milligram, 150 milligram, and 300 milligram once every three months. And their serum uric acid level, uh, along with C-reactive protein, were checked every three months in year one, followed by yearly afterwards. Uh, it's been shown in the study and in secondary analysis that in addition of decreased incidence of cardiovascular events, patients in the study group experienced less gout attacks and their C-reactive protein was decreased over time. Uh, this effect was unrelated to serum uric acid level, which was not affected by the medication. Uh, if you would like to know more, please follow us in the room now in the next couple of days. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm coming to you from Amsterdam, the site of ULAR 2018, where we have a lot of great presentations. I'm going to talk about the new ULAR ACR classification criteria for systemic lupus erythematosus. This is abstract OP0020 presented by Martin Aringer, where they discuss the validation process for these new criteria. Along the way, they actually presented the potential limitations of past criteria. The 1998 ACR criteria most of you are familiar with, that's the 11-point criteria, ANA, another immunologic parameter, hematologic, renal, etc. Um, it's the one we all know, four out of 11 criteria make sure that you have uh, a diagnosis of lupus. That was improved upon, supposedly, in 2012 with the new SLIC criteria, where they basically went to a more complex system, one from column A, one from column B, and some weighting that led to some improvements in the performance characteristics. The original performance of the ACR criteria has sensitivity of 80 to 90 percent and a specificity of 90 to 96 percent. When they did the SLIC, what it did was it increased the sensitivity, but it actually decreased the specificity of the new criteria. This new exercise is meant to sort of rectify that and to take a new look at it. So what they did was the, they had a consensus panel of experts, I think there are 50 authors on the abstract that reviewed um, the, the, the determinants, the key variables that they would look at. They required that everybody be an ANA positive of, of 180 or greater. Uh, and then they looked at a sort of weighted point system that they developed through sort of a Delphi process that gave a higher degree of value to something like biopsy-proven nephritis that would get 8 to 10 points versus lower uh, predictive value variables like oral ulcers, uh, fever and delirium that got two points. Uh, it turns out in their weighting system, uh, serologies got more points, five to six points, compared to clinical measures such as uh, arthritis uh, and malar rash, which would get four, five, or six points. So when they finished with the project, uh, they came up with this sort of complex system that was not sort of usable as far as I was concerned, but nonetheless, they did improve their performance characteristics. Now, what they were able to do was to in maintain a high level of sensitivity that was running around 96 to 98%, uh, and their specificity was now improved over the previous SLIC criteria up to now 96%. 
So while this is uh, an advance, I think it's one for clinical trials and researchers and maybe lupus mavens. I think at the point of care, this is still too complex and gets further away from what we use in practice to make a diagnosis of lupus. Clearly, we want to stay away from just making it a serologic-only diagnosis. We know that that doesn't work and that you need reliable clinical characteristics. These new criteria, somewhat like the RA new criteria, that are, again, weighted and designed to get patients with more certain disease, maybe even more early disease. How it will pan out is not, not clear at this point. It now goes to the ACR and ULAR for acceptance and then publication. Let's see where this goes. Tune into Room Now for more good videos and more good learning. Hello, this is Olga Petrina reporting from the second day of ULAR meeting here in Amsterdam. I would like to share findings of the study presented by Dr. Maroni from Italy on use of canakinumab in women who became pregnant while on treatment. In this study, six uh, female patients uh, who were treated with canakinumab, uh, 150 milligram uh, monthly after induction dose for at least 45 uh, weeks before pregnancy and um, seven weeks into pregnancy to the point when, when the test became positive, were evaluated for incidents of adverse events and pregnancy outcomes. And in this study, there was no uh, evidence of uh, malformation or pregnancy complications. Uh, in this study, all of the newborns were uh, presented with APGAR scores of more than eight, except for one uh, patient who had a low score after C-section and after the first five minutes and all of the patients were able to maintain low disease activity uh, before, during and after pregnancy with psoriatic uh, arthritis activity scores of less than four. Overall, doesn't seem to be any uh, alarming signals, although the, the group of the patients is very small and I think it's definitely worth collecting more data going forward. Everyone, this is Olga Petrina reporting from the second day of the annual uh, ULAR meeting in Amsterdam. Today, I walked through poster hall and two posters uh, drew, drew my attention. Uh, both are uh, about use of serum calprotectin level in measuring disease activity in two somehow different inflammatory conditions. First poster, O610, uh, describes use of serum calprotectin in uh, measuring disease activity in Bruchette's disease. Uh, in this study, 48 patients with active Bechets were evaluated and uh, serum calprotectin levels were compared to serum ESR and CRP levels along with uh, Bechette's disease activity scores and across all scores and serum levels of ESR and CRP, uh, all patients with active disease had elevated levels of serum calprotectin. So authors of the study suggest using serum calprotectin as one of the uh, disease activity measures in, uh, in patients with active Bichette's. Similar poster was presented in psoriatic arthritis, poster number 0308, where uh, authors tried to uh, measure serum calprotectin levels in uh, psoriatic arthritis patients and rheumatoid arthritis patients and compare them to uh, ultrasound findings of synovitis. Uh, in this study, while uh, CRP levels correlated with high uh, calprotectin levels in both psoriatic and rheumatoid arthritis, in terms of uh, ultrasound findings, uh, rheumatoid arthritis showed no correlation, while uh, psoriatic arthritis patients did show some uh, 
small but significant correlation with a serum calprotectin. So all in all, it seems like serum calprotectin could be a promising new uh, disease activity marker in the diseases where uh, markers of objective uh, disease activity are uh, few and uh, newer studies will be required to, to validate those two. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now, and let's talk about abstracts at big meetings. You know, abstracts are a key way that we can learn. In real life, we read the abstracts. We go to meetings, and the abstracts are, that are presented are the, the heart of the meetings. I can include both the live presentations, but also the abstract floor. So I wrote this blog about the art of an abstract and how it should be uh, presented, uh, constructed, uh, and viewed when you go to large meetings. So first, let's go into the presentations. In the blog, you can find it on roomnow.com, it goes over how you can construct an abstract, what the key elements are, how you can use a PowerPoint file as a template to construct these abstracts and your poster, and then lastly, how you can get it printed for little or no money. So it's, a, it's an art. It's been done a million times before by others. Those who have to do it for the first time, however, often struggle. You can spend again, very little money or you can spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars and weeks of manpower to try to put these together. I think if you look at the blog, you'll get a sort of template on how to march through it. Next is actually how to present the abstract, especially a poster on a big meeting floor like at ULAR or ACR. The most important thing, besides looking good and you know, wearing your interview suit, is to be present, uh, to be interesting. Uh, and to engage people in conversation. All too frequently, especially young uh, trainees and first-time presenters, sit there stiffly with their hands folded across their, their waist, waiting for someone, praying that someone doesn't actually approach them because it's very frightening. But you really need to learn that it is the interaction that can be both the most interesting, uh, the most learning, and maybe the best thing for your research career and your, ultimately your publication. So there I think you need to you know, use a pointer, uh, a stick, something, a prop that you can manually throw around and, and actually use that as a way of garnering attention. Uh, the second way is to sort of be animated, to be lively, to smile, to project, to talk to people, to point at people. The best here is Dr. Ted Pincus. If you've never seen him present an abstract, you've missed the show in rheumatology. Uh, he's a master at it. I've learned from him millions and millions of times. Even today, uh, I saw him at, at, the, at the poster session here at ULR, and he's got a big crowd around him. How does he do it? Well, people walk by. He's a recognizable person, and they stop just to say hello. But then the show takes over, his abstract. And he starts pointing, and he starts waving his hands, and being very animated and asking questions, and what would you do? I'll tell you what we did. And before you know it, one person becomes three, becomes 12, and now there's a log jam uh, of rubbernecking going on, and people are straining their necks to see what's going on at that poster. Oh, that's Dr. Pincus. So again, you can learn from that. It may not be your style, but that style of engagement is truly important in, uh, in learning uh, from the abstract experience. And lastly, uh, how are you going to view and take in the abstracts when you're attending a meeting? It's, it's important to, number one, do your pre-work. You need to map out the abstracts that you need to see. You can do that with the app from the Congress. They are very good at finding the subjects that you want to review. But you can also go, th go through the abstract book, um, 
write, write down the numbers, basically make a hit list of what you need to see when you hit the abstract floor the next day. Then you need to navigate. Where am I going to go? How am I going to get there? The one big problem and the one great benefit at the same time of the abstract floor is that you'll meet all your friends. You'll run into people who you haven't seen in years. Before you know it, you can spend half of your 90 minutes or most of your 90 minutes doing social things, which is just fine if that's what your intent is. However, if you want to learn, you need to keep the, keep the chit-chat at a minimum. So being a, a planful, knowing your hit list, having a navigation plan, and avoiding the chit-chat is really the best way to learn on the abstract floor. Be sure to go out there and learn. Be sure to tune into Room Now.